The Third Magpie by M.S. Clements Read by Hannah Timms Episode 13 A Study in Lying Tolbridge University, aged 18 I don't need to be a professor to pick out a multitude of inconsistencies in my argument. The letters lift off the screen in a jumbled mess and I pinch the bridge of my nose to halt the pain, but it persists, fanning out behind my eyes, reaching to the back of my head. A wave of nausea crashes over me and I rest my elbows, waiting for the sickness to dissipate. Marcus spreads across the sofa engrossed in his phone. His forehead wrinkles in irritation and judging from the frantic typing of his fingers he's having yet another silent row with Katie. Their stormy relationship baffles me. One minute full-on passion, the next sulks and tantrums. You could actually talk to her, I say. Nah, she wants to watch a stupid rom-com. I'd rather clean the toilet with a toothbrush than spend two hours of my life watching her fawn over a ridiculous actor. You sound jealous. Besides, a film's bound to be more amusing than babysitting me. I've got a headache, so I'll just head off to bed. Don't you want to eat first? I was going to make risotto, offers Marcus, rolling off the battered sofa. Sure. I don't want to, but if I refuse, it will set Marcus off on another lecture about healthy eating. I've heard his speech that many times I could probably say it word for word. It's just easier and far quieter to say yes. I'll silently vomit the meal back later. I've got good at that. Sometimes life is simpler when I lie. Marcus is cheered by his minor victory, already heading to the kitchen, thumbs dancing across the phone screen. He calls back, Mushroom okay? Katie loves mushrooms. And I'll even let her watch her bloody rom-com if she does the washing up. Do you think she was as kind and devoted as the plaque suggests? said Finn, fingering the brass plate. Carl glanced up from his task of gathering daffodils. What's that you're saying, lad? Eloise Phillips. Do you think she's in heaven, watching over us? Or in hell, directing the demons of this world, giving them a list of daily humiliations to be performed on me. Carl sighed and headed up to the bench where Finn was sitting. Here, take these to Soph. Doubt the dead will mind. Thanks, he replied, taking the bouquet. He lay the buttery-coloured blooms in the small space between them. You know what, said Carl. You and I... 
should stop imagining what the dead think and get on with living our own lives. He picked up the daffodils and shuffled closer to Finn. Come on, let's have an evening together, just the two of us. I'll even drink some of that poison purporting to be wine. Finn laughed while Carl hugged him, saying, At bloody last! Well, they do say laughter is the best medicine. He lost his smile and shook his head. The only medicine available for people like me is toxic. To be honest, when I'm not tutoring, I want to go home and veg. I'm not good company right now. Carl squeezed him within his arms. Nonsense, lad. You're being defeatist. You're letting them win. Don't you get it, Carl? I lost years ago. Finn stood to leave and as he reached for the daffodils, Carl grabbed his wrist. You've got to stop this. You're the lucky one with someone up the top who likes you. I bet you'd even get away with murder. Believe me, Carl, there are plenty I would happily kill. Hope I'm not on that list. Carl released his wrist. Finn shook his head once more. No, I could never hurt a daft old fool like you, he said. Not so much of the old, thank you. Guess we ought to head back. They'll be ringing the bell soon. I suppose so. According to that officer Enright, I am fit enough to work and that is what I must do. A shiver ran through Finn and a couple of the daffodils slipped from his hand. Instead of picking them up, he sat back down heavily, his hand covering his face as tears escaped, while the comforting weight of Carl's arm rested on his back. The previous week he had questioned Finn about the treatment centre. Initially, Finn refused to answer his questions, but Carl could be such a persistent bastard at times. Maybe Finn was at a particularly low ebb or just worn down by his friend's doggedness. But eventually he had opened up, admitting his sense of guilt. That dark shadow of pain which he carried within him, every waking moment because he had not been one of the other men. Carl had sat on their bench, unusually lost for words as Finn had recalled the humiliation of the health examinations. The smell of fear surrounding the quaking prisoners. Finn carried the burden of the protected DIA, with the wife who had the right connections, who uttered the right sycophantic words, and who handed over the right-sized bribe. Oh, now come on, Finn, lad. You're just a bit low. Once spring's here and you get a bit of sunshine, you'll see how much better you'll be. Always trying to inject positivity where none could exist. Finn emerged from behind his hands with red-rimmed eyes and his pale skin marked by digging fingers. Picking up his water bottle, he splashed his face, trying to eliminate the evidence of sadness. Sorry about that. Look, you go if you need to, he said to Carl, who was checking his phone messages. I'll be fine. Don't worry about me. Nah, it's fine. Someone just wanted me to drop by later. I'm not going anywhere. Come on. You're okay now. It really isn't so bad, is it? I'm a number, Carl. I am 568216 slash 2 slash MI. 
he said, accepting his lot. The boxes have been ticked and the number can get back to doing the job it has been allocated. I'm so lucky, so fortunate. I have a protector who makes sure the torture of life in this hell continues. You're right. I will be fit and happy, just in time to be returned to the holding cell at the treatment centre, handcuffed and shackled with my clothes, my identity all taken away. A prisoner in prison clothes, complete with my prisoner number. I am still in a prison. A comfortable prison, I grant you, but it is still a prison and... Sophie has become my prison guard. If you want to know what hell is really like, take a peek inside one of the labour camps. Carl snapped back. I'll tell you one thing, Michael Finlay. Complaining about having a beautiful wife to care for you, having a warm bed to sleep in and food on the table, that is not prison. You'd never survive it. He stood up, making Finn regret his admission. Don't go. I'm sorry. He tugged at Carl's sleeve. I wasn't thinking. Please, stay. I'm sorry, too. It's, it's okay to be sad. We all have sad days. God, wouldn't be much of a best friend if I abandoned you at the first sign of self-pity, eh? Said Carl, sitting back down. You know, these restrictions are just one more overreaction to an event. Pandemics happen, and governments have to take precautions. It's just one of those things. But you're better now. I want to go home, Finn blurted out. I thought you were teaching after lunch. No, not cottage home, not home to Sophie. Back home, to my family, my parents, my brother, to... to Evie. Finn's voice broke with emotion at saying his sister's name out loud. Christ, Finn, are you talking about repatriation? What about Sophie? She'll be devastated. It's a lie. Love conquers all. It's a lie. How can love grow and develop here? Every day there is another humiliation to absorb, but that's okay because we're in love. We can take it. The truth is, we can't. Nobody can. How is this a life for Sophie? She works long hours so that we can survive. Constantly insulted, being called a, a slut, a whore, all because she's married to me. She should be out enjoying her life, bringing up her children, going to the theatre, visiting friends restriction-free. If I stay, I will die, either slowly driven to take my own life or by the state, one more foreign terrorist hanging from the gallows. Is that what I should do, ruin the rest of her life? It neither matters whether I leave or die. Sooner rather than later, Sophie will be left on her own.
Khan Top, Melbourne Manor House, age 21. The earlier dawn wakes me, and sitting on the sofa in my bedroom, I contemplate Corn Top. It glows beneath the morning haze, tempting me to venture out. There are no lectures until later this afternoon, plenty of time for a ride to the top. A breakfast of cookies and my water bottle filled. I write a quick note for Miss McManus. I'll get an affectionate telling off and a plate of sausage and eggs on my return. I cycle along the private lane to the start of the track. It is stony and steep. Sweat builds upon my forehead. At the field by Loishian Wood, I stop for some water and watch the ewes with their newborn lambs. The blue of the sky, the green field, and the white lambs. I am happy, almost euphoric. Everything is perfect. My tutor thinks I should do a master's, maybe even a PhD at a foreign university. Dad says it's an interesting idea, one that I ought to consider. I discussed it with Sally, but like most therapists, she just asked, but what do you want? Dad says I should speak some more to his friend, Dr. Hargreaves. He wants me to go, have a fresh start, anonymity in a foreign land. I don't want to disappoint him again, but New Albany is so far from home. I keep pedaling beads of moisture rolling down my back while last night's conversation repeats in my head. Mum said nothing. I know she wants me to stay. Dad argues that it would be good for me. I can do it. I'm so much better now. He talked about me staying with Liam, a sort of halfway house. I push further up the hill and work through excuses to stay. It is level here, and I slow down, taking a breather. There are lambs in Cop's Edge Field. I love watching them at this playful stage, but it is so short. They'll leave their mothers soon. We must all leave our mothers and face becoming an adult one day. At the top of the hill, I lean my bike up against the oak tree. The field is bordered by a dry stone wall, a wall I have helped maintain, just as my ancestors had done throughout the history of the Sheans in Melbourne. My rural solitude is disturbed only by the breeze blowing against my ears. I can just about make out the engines of an aeroplane far off in the distance. I love it up here, that unique peace and freedom. Even when Dad joins me on the ride, he understands me enough to let me wallow in the silence. Sometimes we lie, side by side, cloud-watching. At first, he found it difficult accepting my silence. I'd see him wipe away tears. I hurt him. I hurt them both. Now it's changed. We have all recovered. Melbourne Village nestles in the valley, the spire of its church rising above the roofs. On Sundays, I hide behind the other choristers, invisible to the congregation. On the far side of the village is my home. This 
is my entire world. The prospect of leaving Melbourne fills me with terror. I don't need Dr. Hargreaves' sales pitch. That university had an amazing reputation, still does, according to Liam. He reckons the press exaggerate, tells me to ignore the reports. It will look good on my CV. And as Dad says, ultimately, I can always come home if it's a disaster. It tempts me, that prospect of stepping outside my Sheehan world. Finally, strong enough to fight back against the monsters that hold me prisoner. An adult, fit and able to follow my chosen path. Thank you for listening to this production of The Third Magpie. To support our work, please consider buying or gifting a digital copy of The Third Magpie from Amazon or post a review on Goodreads. Register at pageupbooks.co.uk to stay in touch with future projects. That's pageupbooks, P-G-U-P, like the key on your keyboard, P-G-U-P, books.co.uk. Thank you.